Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. And we are coming to you from these United States of America, here in the middle of the country, Iowa, in America, Iowa Catholic Radio. Bum, bum, bum. But it's Easter, so let's before we get into anything else, yeah. he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Fantastic, folks. I hope you are appropriately feasting. Mm. But weirdly enough, <laughs> I don't want to knock on wood too much here, but I had a pretty good Lent. Uh, I have to admit, like, oh. this is the first time uh. that, like, uh, in a long time that we mostly didn't eat meat. We weren't, like, complete sticklers to it. But anybody who knows the Bonner diet, um, it involves a lot of meat. Um, but we stuck with it. Um, I read uh, the book that you suggested I read for Lent. It was very profitable. I thank you for that. And uh, I guess I don't want to go overboard proclaiming it and, and the universe punish us back. But I have to admit, this felt like the first Lent triduum in a long time that like uh, felt like ones of old. It was very nice. Well, this is part of the Christian life that I'm pretty good at, Easter. <laughs> Easter tide. <laughs> No, I don't know if I graded out as well as you did with my limp, but it, it is great to reach Easter. I love this time of year. I mean, uh, obviously, like, the resurrection of our Lord and remembering that and celebrating that is the highlight, but the trees are blooming, the birds are singing, the cubs are losing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, b- baseball started up, and I feel like uh, pretty soon here we'll be able to do, like, brunch outdoors absolutely and i mean uh over at the college we'll talk about mercy college of health sciences of course uh senior advisor over here uh me bo bonner over at mercy college bud what do you do at the old place i'm the associate provost and i think we found a provost so i truly will be an associate again (laughs) (laughs) and And, some more knocking on wood yeah and if you're um listening to the show with us this weekend we've just remembered celebrated the inauguration of our fourth president dr adrian henry so Wonderful, joyous celebration this past Friday, including Mass at St. Ambrose Cathedral. So grateful to Bishop Johnson and the Diocese of Doyne for helping us to uh, pray together and to celebrate together as uh, Dr. Henry was officially installed as the fourth president. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. We, we just had a lot of stuff going on very well, finishing up with the spring semester, getting ready to start the summer one. But people um, already can look uh, into the fall, uh, mchs.edu. So, yeah, but... Uh, Tons of stuff going on yeah. uh, down in downtown Des Moines at Mercy College of Health Sciences, mchs.edu. Thank you for underwriting the show. I like being on the edge of downtown because I'm not a very hip person, but I work at a college. You know, like they, our college flyers and things can have like the beautiful like ACE uh, Academic Center for Excellence, like the facade with, you know, how they take those pictures where like the, um, the car brake lights are like they're like extended out because oh yes yes the, the time lapse time lapse so we work in a cool location. Do you, what's funny <laughs> about this? At um, I'm trying to think. So this is year seven, seven and some change, and I still remember the first time I came to Des Moines and visited you. Um, I forget where because I, I thought I, I don't know if I drove in or flew in. But we were over where you used to live, uh, yeah. so I don't feel like I'm, a, I'm I'm turning it over where you live. But you lo- used to live over in a place. It was Urbandale, right? Urbandale by like the Aldi Big Hy-Vee out there. Yeah, so I go there, but I think I actually meet you all the way up in Johnston now that I'm remembering this. Anyway, we're driving around and we're trying to find a place to eat, and all of a sudden you turn into downtown, and I just felt like 
we went through a magical portal because you're thinking Des Moines and the sort of, you know, middle of the country. I mean, I've been to Wichita and stuff like this, uh, but you can really like all of a sudden be downtown Des Moines and Mercy College smack dab in the middle of, like you said, um, the magic portal into downtown. And downtown Des Moines is humbler than some major American metropolitan areas, but uh, we've got skywalks. And I know, Bo, like during this time of year, you sometimes lead uh, the staff at Mercy College of Health Sciences on these like tours of downtown Des Moines. Yeah, the idea is if I'm walking, you can too. <laughs> I think that's the idea. But I, I, we've had people fly in from Chicago and they say that Des Moines downtown seems not bigger, but like they, yeah. they, they, they just go because there's hills and things. It doesn't seem just like this flat expanse. So just one more reason to not cheer for the Cubs, right, bud? Now, we're, we're getting looks now, bud, so we should say that we're just joking, and we're getting ready to be done with the segment. <laughs> so we're going to turn from making people mad. We're not going to talk about downtowns or, or baseball teams. We're going to talk about the resurrection. Um, perfectly apropos for this time of year. It's great to be talking with you. It's great to have you with us. This is The Uncommon Good, talking about Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection appearances here on the show. Uh, Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, The Uncommon Good. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. We're back with The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week, this Easter week. Bud, he is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. So it is great to be with you. Listening here on Iowa Catholic Radio, thank you everybody who listens to the show when it is broadcast live on the Iowa Catholic Radio Network, iowacatholicradio.com, Iowa Catholic Radio app, and for those listening on podcast. So, Bud, being that it is the Easter season, um, we decided not to feast on air because chomping on air doesn't sound good, but I do think uh, I've been doing my part feasting. I'm little worried about gaining the Easter weight, but uh, it's also been warm, so I've been trying to run around a bit as well. Uh, but it does mean on air we can consider the Easter story. I mean, you could consider the Easter story all uh, all year, but I really think this idea about the readings that we're starting to hear that have to do with the resurrection and the immediate aftermath. So we were talking about Emmaus Road, which I think a lot of people who are, are probably prone to listen to Iowa Catholic Radio are quite aware that this is a foundational text for us when it comes to the Eucharist, right? They don't recognize him until the breaking of the bread, and then Christ disappears from their sight to sort of overemphasize, right? From now on, yeah. the the presence where you will see and feel my presence will be uh, in the Eucharistic uh, sacrament. Um, but, but I think there was other things that struck us that we wanted to make sure people maybe uh, chewed on uh, during this Easter season. Yeah, that's one of my favorite accounts from the Gospels, and it's great that it shows up during Eastertide. Uh, you know the disciples that are walking to Emmaus, Jesus begins, our risen Lord begins walking alongside them, and they don't recognize him at this point. In fact, there's kind of a humorous bit in the story where he talks to the disciples about being downcast, and one of them says, like, don't you know all that just went down yeah, in Jerusalem? Are you the only person who hasn't heard about this? Yeah. <laughs> and so our Lord walks them through uh, Moses, like the law and the prophets, and shows shows them that all these things had to come to pass. But as you said, Bo, they actually don't recognize his true identity until the breaking of the bread, until he's breaking bread with them. And this is an essential point. You mentioned how his presence is mediated differently to us now. Theologians point out, really important point, that when we consume the body and blood of Christ at Mass, you know, at the altar, it's... It's not the crucified body of our Lord. So his sacrifice on the cross is made present to us, 
but he's able to be sacramentally present because it's his risen glorified body. And so even for us today, there's, um, we don't know Christ fully or as we should until the breaking of the bread, until we commune with him at mass. And Bo, I can say this, um, like as a real personal angle that for myself, it's funny to look back to my Protestant days because I think of passages like the sixth chapter of the gospel of John, where Jesus says explicitly, like if you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life, that his, his flesh is true food indeed, that it's a new and greater manna. You know, like the people of Israel ate manna in the desert, this miraculous bread, and still died. But those who eat of his flesh uh, will live forever because he is the bread of life. And so for us today, like for myself and my own spiritual journey, my eyes weren't opened until I experienced Christ in the Eucharist, where I had read those passages for a long time as a Protestant, but their true meaning, their true spiritual death, depth, excuse me, wasn't available until I knew him and the breaking of the bread. I do like that, calling it spiritual death. Like that's uh that's well, sort we of, do have to die with yeah. Christ to rise again. That's what I was going to say. I was going to throw out there's probably a way in which that's true. Um, what I think is interesting on this, and we, we can get into very much more um, very dorky theology parts, so people be prepared for the dorkness. Um, I think it's interesting how at first it seems like, oh, you know, you really can't know um, Jesus until he's absent. So it can sound like, Jesus has to remove himself. And on one hand, Bud, we, we, I know that we've talked about this leading up in some of the episodes coming up to Easter, that Jesus, like in the Transfiguration or when he's doing his greatest of miracles, people, they really want to go talk about it, right? They want to go, can you believe who this guy is? And he keeps telling them, don't do that, wait, you don't understand. There's a lot of not understanding. And the idea is, even if you see Christ transfigured on Mount Tabor, glowing like you've never seen anyone, you really haven't seen him until you've seen the cross, which is a sort of absence, right? Him dead, right? Um, But of course, him dead so that he can be resurrected. But it seems like this theme's starting to, oh, I thought we were done, right, with not understanding who he is. I thought we were done being confused. Multiple occasions, though, bud, where the resurrected Christ is not immediately understood until he does things like says uh, Mary Magdalene's name, for instance, yeah. or in this case, in Emmaus. So oh, are we? is it more of this? Is it more absence? Is presence and supposed to be really mystical? And here I'm borrowing a lot from a, a wonderful article from um, a writer I respect a lot, uh, B.D. McClay, who is talking about how this can all seem like mystical and intellectual, right? Like the absent yeah. God, and aren't we so grown up and, uh, you know, existential when we think this way? But of course, what's being said is that Christ is so present now, it's actually the opposite way. It's not that he's absent, and so we have to sort of remember him or make a memorial. It's that if he stayed with us as he is in his resurrected reality on earth, walking around, we couldn't handle it. And so it's actually much more like if you look at the sun, your eyes will go dark. Okay. And so I think that's part of what's going on, right, is to walk with the resurrected Christ is in some ways to be so present with Christ's presence that it's blinding. And they really didn't notice it. They couldn't tell who he was, but until it was mediated, right? It was mediated through the scripture. It was mediated through the sacrament. There's this way that people will go, you know, a a sort of atheist, maybe a certain Christian. I'd believe if Christ would just make it obvious, if he would just appear. And I actually think if Christ was still with us, but it would be harder for us to actually have a relationship with him. We, in our fallen state, our fallen nature, have to have Christ mediated, 
not because he's so distant and far, but because he's so close and his presence is so present that we wouldn't be able to live except that it's mediated through the veil of the sacrament of the scriptures. It's because of his exceeding life that he now lives resurrected that he has to go and send the spirit, bud, because otherwise we, we couldn't take it. Well, I like that point about mediation. I think also when we think about our relationship with Christ, the, the knowledge that we're talking about, it, it has a lot more textured quality than we're used to when we think about knowing something. So to me, the analogy is a deep friendship or even a marriage where, so um, to be a little facetious, like I think about knowing my wife and, you know, like someone could write a very detailed book about Rachel and it would describe her height and her educational background and the, the qualities of her hair, you know, all lovely things that I love about her. <laughs> but I, I couldn't know her by studying facts in the way that I know her by being in relationship with her. And so this, this is multiplied when we think about knowing the Lord or like knowing God, if we even sort of like uh, made it broader and stepped out further. But like I, I say it's multiplied because of what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. So uh, you know, because of the sin of our first parents, there's an impact on our lives that goes even beyond the point of baptism. So baptism, we say, washes away the stain of sin, but Catholics have always talked about concupiscence in the way that sin can, can, uh, excuse me, still continues to burden us. That affects our ability to know. And so uh, as, as we come to know Christ and we grow in the depth of this knowledge, like I think you see, especially in the lives of the disciples, that they still they were still operating with like a worldly, like sort of human mindset. Um, there's another writer who I was reading recently who said that through their experience of the passion and then the resurrection, they developed the intelligence of the victim, meaning beforehand they had kind of operated still with that human mindset where God is sort of like on the side of the powerful or they were expecting uh, the one sent by God to act in certain ways. And so you see this, of course, when, when Peter first declares Jesus to be the son of God, right? And he truly confesses Christ's identity. And then immediately our Lord starts to talk to him about the need to like journey to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And St. Peter wants to like, he wants to call him off that track. And so he sort of wants to separate the messianic identity from the calling to, to suffer and to die. And Jesus shows that like, no, the two are inextricably bound together. And so the next person in the gospels interestingly enough, who recognizes Christ for who he is, is the centurion at the foot of the cross. And when he sees Christ crucified, he looks up and says, like, truly, um, this, this was the son of God. And he confesses, like, he confesses him to who he is, who he truly is. And so, like, it's through, it's not until the disciples walk through that, that they have the lens to see, like, who Christ truly came to be. Yeah. And, and, even then we start to go, well, why does he have to be that way? So part of it is the capacity. I mean, it, this gets tricky, right? So another person I'm thinking of is uh, uh, Herbert McCabe, who is talking about exactly like you said, that when when love is perfectly exhibited, it can't help but be cruciform in this life, meaning it can't help but be the case that a love like, like Christ that is perfect and self-giving will end up being crucified by the sinfulness of the human race as it exists today. Yeah. Um, and not even just today, throughout all of history, right? This is, like you said, original sin. 
So there's a one way in which this is God being perfectly consistent in himself. He, he loves without remainder because he doesn't need anything. When that sort of love, that selfless love, that perfectly effusive love hits, as it were, the friction of the sinful world, that, that sin is always going to try to crucify it. But what's, of course, overwhelming and wonderful and glorious in, in our very salvation is even when that sort of love, the divine love, the God who is love itself is crucified, of course, that crucifixion only redoubles that love more, bud. And so that love can't be defeated even by being opposed. That's more powerful mm. than any positive power we can imagine on earth. We imagine God as this big emperor, right, that would come and set things right without the cross, like you were saying. Yeah. So it's it's no wonder, right, that they couldn't conceive of it because when you go, who, what's this, what, what kind of power is necessary to overcome all of this that's wrong. And we think it has to be, oh, like Caesar, but a times a thousand. Mm. But it's actually this power that needs nothing so that it can be completely abased and, and completely given out so that it can overcome any power that stands in its way, that power of sacrificial love, like you said. But even more interesting for where I'm coming from is, to your point, to have the sort of knowledge of the victim is... It's actually God's way of making himself knowable at all to us in a way we can handle it. Yeah. Because if it wasn't, you know, you think about this, that that's why it's so important to realize that on the resurrection and in heaven forever, Christ retains his wounds. That's sort of the key to us to be able to understand the resurrection at all, to understand God at all. And I think about this in terms of, the Eucharist itself, right? Why is it the, the, the sacramental veil of the Eucharist is necessary, bud? Because that is Christ continuing to be sacrificed, right? Mm. What What is a way to be more manipulatable than to be an object that can be consumed? Yeah. God, you know, you, you, again, if he would have been re- crucified and resurrected, and be like, by the way, I want you to make the biggest statue on earth mm. and everybody go to one place and you have to fly to worship me there, it would all be justified, right? Like he completely earned it. And yet, what does resurrected love look like? A continual, complete abasement and offering, right? We can profane God, bud. Yeah. That's the craziest thing to think about, that even after the resurrection, Christ allows himself to be profaned if we receive him wrong, if we profane the Eucharist, all these things. Mm. That sacrificial love that is so unneedful of anything that even after he's defeated death, he continues to be, like you said, the language of the victim, the absolute laying himself for, the, for, for humanity to ignore him because of his, his perfect love extending throughout history. John Henry Newman has a great sermon on just that point that you were talking about, and it, he talks about the Eucharistic Lord being turned over into the hands of sinners, and he sets it up rhetorically so powerful because he... He starts with a meditation about like just think about like these uh you know like the soldiers were striking God. I mean he really he zeroes in on the incarnation and so like an innocent victim and think about like they just weren't they weren't taking advantage of an, like simply another human being but God in the flesh. And so as as a listener you're kind of like taking this all in and then he says like eat, like the almost like greater scandal or like the greater mystery is that he continues to turn himself over to sinners who sometimes come, you know, like with mixed motives or, you know, like their mind is completely elsewhere or they're holding their keys in their hands. He doesn't say keys in their hands, but like, um, it's a wonderful sermon. 
I think it's tough for us to go back to like, we've heard all these, we've heard all these stories. We've heard all these accounts. And so like the framework of our minds already starts with knowing like, Oh, it all works out in the end or whatever. But, uh, it, some of this would have just been so shocking to the people who first read the gospels, um, for the first time, you know, David Bentley Hart, another theologian makes a point like that the gospel writers take an account of like Peter, a peasant, like crying tears, like no writers before that time would have like really even like concerned themselves with that. But beforehand, you know, like you think about even a book like Exodus in the old Testament, you know, God was the gods were always seen as being on the sides of the Pharaohs, like on the side of the powerful and so, like, this account written about, like, the true God hears the cries of slaves, like, how revolutionary that was. Um, and, and so many, like, mythologies that we have were really about, like, uh, that person who, who was off, like, he really had it coming. Like, we didn't know the whole story. But if you dig deep enough, there was something there that, like, he deserved to die. And with the, with the telling of the Gospels, it's not only that it exposes or shines a harsh light on, like, the falsity of the way that human beings sometimes, like, told history, but the victim in this case was truly God and truly innocent. So it would, it would have been one thing for Jesus as a teacher to try to like unravel some of that and say like, look, this scapegoat, the scapegoating, this exclusionary practices that you all are involved in, like that's wrong. And you really should see like, I mean, Jesus does do this sort of thing and breaks down the barriers that exist between Jews and Gentiles, but for a victim to willingly go to his death uh, John's gospel makes a huge point about this to willingly go to his death and to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It not only exposed the lies that have been taking place, but it like exploded them. And that's like you're saying with the Eucharist, we're embedded in that story every time that it takes place. So we walk, so to speak to the foot of the cross and we see once again, the victim, but he's displayed in glory and he invites us into like the fullness of his love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, I think about, for instance, how, um, I don't want to say the worst of preachers or something like this, but, I mean, even us, we do bad, for instance, we do wrong uh, at the hand of the scrupulous, for instance. If we take that, that Newman point you were saying, yeah. like, you know, he, he pulls such a great rhetorical move, like, can you believe what those Romans were doing? By the way, we do similar things when we neglect the reality of, of the Eucharist. We flatten the point you and I are making if we're all, it sounds like we're saying is this moralizing, like, yeah. so you better sit and behave and really pay attention. You know, and I know that, like, scrupulous people, that's what, like, drives them away from church is they're like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not paying enough attention. And you're like, no, you're actually getting it completely backwards. Don't you see that God heard the cry of the victim and the scrupulous and said, I'm willing for the rest of time to be abused on the altar for your sake. You're, you're not hearing me right, says the Lord. It's not that you have to be a goody two-shoes and that, you know, so like I'm going to school-marm you because like you don't pay enough attention, although that's the wonderful thing about the Eucharist is for us who aren't scrupulous, who, uh, we who are, who are presumptuous, we really should think about like, you know, if I got tickets to like a, uh, the Super Bowl, right? I would like where my I would like where my finest gear. I'd make plans and things like this. Here we are going to the Eucharist, right? So it's great that, of course, the Eucharist can speak to both groups. But I think the scrupulous are onto something. Where it's right, they're they're concerned about their holiness, but they need to go even deeper into it, right? They need to go all the way because what Christ is saying is, I myself found it worth it not to be treat, mistreated and humiliated once for all of the world 
but I will continue to do that now for you. And the reason he can do that, because the resurrection love is undefeatable, right? It's undefeatable. And so even when we get into arguments about, about like um, Eucharistic discipline, and I think people can severely misunderstand when people should go, hey, you really should go to confession, right, before you go take the Eucharist. Again, it's not this idea of like that you'll hurt Jesus and they'll say, that. oh, so what, you think you think our Lord uh, is offended? Hmm. Our Lord's not offended by anything. He's defeated death. The question is about what's best for people. And again, it's not a matter of you need to like work up and deserve the Eucharist. It's a matter of don't you want to be prepared for what the Eucharist is? And the Eucharist is not a prize. I know Pope Francis is very fond of making this point. It's not a prize for people who have earned it, but it is the love that mows over, as it were, any sort of thing that stands against it. And the best thing we have to offer, and the only thing we have to offer, bud, is ourselves in complete humility. And so that, to me, is the crux of this matter, is to think about this is not to guilt the listener out there listening like, you need to behave better at Mass. It's to say, don't you see don't you see what love like this looks like? And don't you want to, to be there? Don't you want to be before that altar? Don't you want to praise the Lord? Don't you want to commune with him? Whatever that takes, including uh, the sacrifice, of, uh, the sacrament of confession. This is the Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. We're back with the Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner, and Dr. Bud Marr coming to you this week. Thank you for listening to the show. Easter week, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia. It's so wonderful to have you with us. We are talking about the resurrection, as is meet and just, bud. Uh, the, what else would you be talking about? <laughs> Word. So in talking about that, um, I think we, you know, we were bringing up this idea about, we, we were talking about the Emmaus Road event. Yeah. And what does it mean to see Jesus after the resurrection? Because it's certainly not like he's like, hey, guys, I'll be at the cafe, so whenever you're around, just come show up. Yeah. He shows up very purposefully, but he also has very purposeful times when he's not there. And he removes himself in interesting ways. And But I think our point that we're trying to explore is that tells us a lot about what our faith life going forward past the resurrection should look like, and that what does it mean when it seems like Christ is absent, and is there a way in which... He's actually very present in those moments. So we should kick it off back from there. Yeah, I really liked the point, Bo, that you're making near the end of the last segment about how Christ's love is indestructible. And this is a really paradoxical part of the gospel. It goes back, in my mind, to the teaching about, like, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it cannot produce new life. And so it's 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 fascinating I think this is one part of the narrative, I mean, among others, that Mel Gibson gets right in the Passion of the Christ, where Satan, when he, so to speak, like orchestrated the arrest and crucifixion of our Lord, I think, you know, uh, early church fathers talk about like this Christus Victor theme about how Christ achieved victory in that. And some of them use this metaphor of almost like a a bait and hook, where um, Satan thought he could he could crush what God was doing by, by killing off our Lord, but it was precisely through that event that this new life was made possible. And uh, that, you know, I think that's one of the hardest truths of the faith for us to truly grasp because it's also true that God is all powerful. And a lot of the other like monotheistic faiths, those who believe in special revelation, like, um, you know, I'm kind of accepting 
Eastern religions because there's something different going on there. But they have this notion like God as creator is all powerful. And even that God wants us to know him and, and, and to be with him in eternity. But I think like the great truth of the Christian faith and the one that's like almost the, the most difficult to wrap our minds around, but also the scandal. Yeah. The scandal is, uh, that God's nature is self-effacing love. But because of that, you know, like it would, like in our minds from like a human perspective, like the answer might be, it'd be simple if God just like coerced everyone or brought this about by force and eat like the followers of Jesus. were often tempted to do that. I think even in my conversations with relatives and things, it's like, if I can just have like the foolproof argument, I'll finally be able to like bring my, my uncle's mind along or something, you know, but like we actually preach the gospel. And in saying this, I'm not trying to, lessen our responsibility because it's like oh good now like i don't have to have uncomfortable conversations but we make the gospel known through preaching and that preaching also involves the integrity of our lives so i think for instance when our lord in the sermon on the mount he teaches us to turn the other cheek to give without expecting anything in return to if someone like um steals like your cloak to give them the shirt off your back as well it's through those practices that we also make Christ visible in the world. So foundationally, like through the celebration of the mass, uh, his true presence is, is, is made like it's brought into our midst. And then in our lives, as we, insofar as we imitate the person of Christ and are conformed to the son of God, we also display to the world, the love and the mercy that God's extended to us. And that's where we start getting into like, one of my least favorite ideas posed by a Christian theologian is like these, this idea of like substitutionary atonement where, where our Lord just like sort of serves in our place. Like he, like we're sinners and we deserve this sort of punishment and God play, God, the father placed like his son there instead or whatnot. Like, no, St. Paul says we fill out the afflictions that are lacking in Christ's body. Like we, it's not because his sacrifice was imperfect or like it didn't achieve what it was meant to achieve, but that we, like the mystery of our faith is that God also calls us to be co-workers in this entire process. Well, I think what that ultimately is saying is love will look like humiliation in a world tainted with sin. And I just thought of this one when you were talking, and so shout out to my friend Eve Tushnet who makes this point quite a bit about humiliation. We don't want to humiliate people. There's all sorts of ways that what we even mean by humiliation can be perverted to bad ends, but essentially, right. What you were saying, Oh, I, you know, it's not about like trying to like make an argument that wins someone over, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have awkward uh, conversations. I'm beginning to think, bud, in my life that the humiliating, like the, the, the most efficacious part of having a conversation about Christianity with someone is the humiliation. Hmm. So it's not about having the sort of rhetorical cruise missile that will like blast their positions and make them surrender. Yeah. Actually, being humili- being willing to be humiliated for our Lord in talking about the gospel might make the person convert far more than any eloquent talk might. Mm. I just want people to think about that, that there are ways in which being willing to be humiliated time and again, I mean, but I know this about you particularly, <laughs> is there's all sorts of fallen away Catholics, there's people who really struggle with stuff, yeah. and they will harp on you for years talking about this stuff and you know to me the greatest witness about you and your devotion to the gospel is you're just willing to tell them the truth even and not like i'm coming up with new ways to really trick them or to win the argument in fact i know that you often come away 
I don't know if like humiliate, but I mean flustered, right? Like it's it's not fun to keep lo- like these these arguments to not quote unquote work how we want. But then it's like on deathbed conversions, and it's down the road. It's precisely this willingness to be, as it were, bud, spiritually flogged at the, the at the at the pillar of the conversation. Yeah. That maybe that's where the efficaciousness of preaching the gospel really is. You think about Paul. Paul had a batting average that's at least baseball in terms of conversions. Like maybe he was converting a third of the people who listened. And if he did, bud, that's like one of the most effective evangelists that ever existed. It might be the humiliations of trying to speak, but not like you said in this term of atonement, right? Where we're like, we're bad. So God wants to humiliate us. No, it's actually that God himself, when his love hits this world, it looks like humiliation, so why wouldn't we expect, bud, when we're being the most faithful, that it will come off like humiliation? Now, of course, if you truly love Christ, and I have a long road to go there, but if you love Christ, you'll actually be completely cool with being humiliated in a conversation for his sake. But we, I, I think sometimes you hear the muscular Christianity crowd being like, we don't need to apologize for anything. We need to stop. And on one hand, I completely agree, right? I completely agree. But on another hand, we really need to be willing to to have that to suffer for the sake of saying the true thing, right? No, this point that you're making about humility is so important. And I it gets back to Bo like we we have we have even false conceptions of humility. So without true humility, we can't enter into a life of prayer. You've got the contrast between the Pharisee who 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 thinks God for not making him like this tax collector, but it's the tax collector who knows his true neediness, who prays authentically. And I think one way we sort of like imitate that temptation or fall into it is sometimes we think it's humble or self-effacing to say like, I'm not really worthy to be a part of what God's doing. Mm. And like, when we think about the glory of God, we think about it something that um, we, we treat it sort of like a scarce resource where if our lady is given veneration, then somehow it's taken away from the glory of God or like, you know, like, like that God's glory is not something to be shared. And I get that impulse because our God is a jealous God. And there is a way where we can turn created finite things into idols. But we also know that one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that God calls us to be coworkers in the vineyard. I heard a speaker sharing recently and he was telling a story about like um, jogging one day and as he's jogging down the street, he sees a, a man mowing his lawn. And right behind this dad, there's his son with the toy lawnmower. And so he's imitating his father. And his father's like, he's taking care of the lawn, and the son wants to be just like dad. And he says, like, he, he circles the block, and he comes around again the next time in the cycle. And this time on this occasion, the father has, like, he's, his son has caught his attention. And he's lifting up his, his son, and his son is holding like the bars of the mower and he's just like a glow like this is so 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 great and the speaker asked the question like who's doing the work is the dad doing the work or is the son doing the work and theologically speaking the correct answer is that of course like without the father the work is not going to be done but the mystery is that the father deigns to call the son call the children into the work and so as catholics like we're monergists, meaning it's God ultimately who attains it, but it's false humility to say like, well, I don't want to take away from the glory of God. Like we are called to participate 
in Christ's passion, you know, and the great saints, like some of those did so to such an extent that they bore the marks of his crucifixion in their own bodies, right? Like the, the mystery of the stigmata. And if anyone comes back to you and says like stigmata, that's like a weird Catholic idea, superstition. Like the first person to probably bear the stigmata was St. Paul. Right. And when he's defending his own apostolicity, he tells, um, yeah, I forget which church it is, but like, I don't want to hear you more about this. Like I bear the marks of Christ in my own body he uses the Greek term stigmata. Now on that occasion, he might be referring to like the lashings that he received or whatnot, but I think really he's a precursor to St. Francis and St. Padre Pio. And hopefully to us, not that we maybe will, will experience like that level of like mystical manifestation of what's taking place, but we are called to be, to be cruciform and to be conformed to the person of Christ Theologians can be bold in what they say about this. I heard a theologian write once, like, uh, like we have to be liquefied so that we can be transubstantiated into Christ. Like, that's the destiny to which God calls all of us. Well, I even think with, like, the lawnmower example, you know, it's like you said. It's it's absolutely the case that the work wouldn't be done unless this dad in this example is mowing the lawn. But it's also, like, the dad chose to pick up the kid and actually put forth more effort to, like, mow the lawn yeah. with the kid mowing and so it gets to be this thing that if the dad goes oh he helped like do you have a right to tell the dad no <laughs> right like the dad is the one mowing the lawn if yeah. he if his way of saying like no, no no we both did it you're like guess we both did it i mean that's like you know all analogies olympics at the point of comparison yeah. but i really do think that that's something to that what i was thinking of bud when you said that is um the easter candle uh leading up to the exultet at um the, the vigil yeah because one of the things that's said, right, is that this one light can light all of these lights, and this light is not taken away from simply because it shares its light with the other candles. And, I mean, this even makes me think of the Song of Songs where you get the famous line, love is stronger than death. Mm. And as you were saying, in, in, in even the Old Testament or even maybe in secular terms, a lot of people would, like, wear that T-shirt, right? Yeah, love stronger than death. But a lot of times people mean like, oh, you know, because I'll remember you even after you die. Or like yeah. Orpheus, right? I'll go to the underworld and find you. Or um, I, would, I would kill for you to keep you alive. But, of course, we mean it after Christ, literally. Like, no, love, love was killed and death lost. Yeah. And so there's this concreteness to this fact that we have to say, right, that you might not think you're worthy and you might – like you say, have a false humility about not wanting to join in the humiliations of Christ's love, but love stronger than death. That's the way it's going to happen, people. If you want to defeat death, you will not overcome it with all of the power and stratagems and force of the world. It will be through the utter abasement of love, but love is more powerful death precisely because love doesn't need anything, and so it can defeat even death because it can keep pouring itself out even after it seems like it's been all poured out. Well, I think this whole point cuts the knot or untangles the knot that we were talking about during the first segment of the tension between scrupulosity and then presumption. So when we talk about God deigning us to call, call us his children and calling us into this work, uh, I, you know, I think of the parable of the prodigal son when the son goes and he squanders the inheritance that his father gave him and he reaches rock bottom. He's eating the food of pigs. He, in that moment, he thinks about returning to the house of the father, but he still has sort of a slave mindset. And what I mean by that is like, he says, well, 
I'll go back and ask if I can be a servant in my father's household because even the servants are better off than I am now. This to me is sort of like, you know, when you get taught in CCD, like for, for contrition to be sufficient during confession, like you can just like as a baseline, have a fear of the punishment that's due to sin. Right. And so he says like, I'm, I'm worse off in this day. I'll go ask to be a servant of my father. But of course, when he turns, returns to his father's household, his father is already waiting to greet him and runs out like in, in this culture, it would have been sort of undignified for an older man like that to like pick up his robes and run to greet someone else. But he's waiting and he lavishes love upon his son. And we, like, there's these little details in the story that we can pass over quickly, but it says like he put a ring on his finger, like a, a fine coat upon his back. And he says, kill the fatted calf because my son was lost, but he's returned home. What is the father doing there? He's trying to get his son to see his true value in his sonship. So he says, like, I think he recognizes that the son has the servant mentality. He says, like, no, everything that I have belongs to you. You just have to recognize your dignity as my son. So the person who's scrupulous, like, they're the ones who are still saying, like, well, I'm not really worthy to return to the father's household. And the ones who are presumptuous think, like, oh, if I just, like, if if I do enough, like, cross my eyes, dot my T's or whatever— then I am worthy when both are being called to, um, to recognize their sonship. And so the one, the one who, the one who's presumptuous, like the goal isn't to say like, yeah, he just has to do enough and then he'll get there. Like even, even the doing is taken care of. And so, so to sin wouldn't be like, like what's scandalous there is not like violating some arbitrary rule. It's participating uh, it, it's saying like, well, I'm going to settle for the pigsty over what I haven't access to in my father's household. No, I, I, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And it returns me once more, which I think you can always do well in Easter season to just think of the exultet, the, the first hymn of the, uh, the Easter vigil as mu- as much as possible. But of course the, the concept of Felix Copa, the happy fault, which you know, but when you're saying like, you know, theologians who can be like, well, technically, you know, the dad is doing this, but okay. So, I mean, I remember being willing to fight <laughs> and argue over and over again about how, oh, the Felix culpa can't be right. Like it can't be a happy fault, right? It can't be the case that something bad, you know, like it goes against double effect and yeah. and it has to be poetic. And, you know, older Bo now is like, well, of course it's a poetic. That's the point. But what's crazy about it is the poetry gets at the reality better than the truth, which is just, I mean, the, 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 the technical truth. The technical truth is the technical truth. Like, God does not need to use evil in order to get good out of it, right? So, like, this is not the idea, yes, Bo, who was 28, <laughs> it's not the case that God needed us to sin in order to save us. But what's amazing, amazing, is that... If this is what occurred, you know, we were sinners. There's no going back to say different. But in, in sinning, what we got was the love of, of the Christ to die for us, right? That, 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 that word, right, that, that phrase from the Exaltet that God loved us so much, right, that he gave his son, like for he ransomed his son, to ransom a slave, he gave his only son. That's the, the, the line that gets me every time. And so, yes, something that great would render any fault 
happy that it's 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 you know why even sit and be neurotic but about the fact that we were sinners that if in response to this sin what god sends is his son to die for us and to be resurrected so that not only we can die to our old selves and be resurrected to this new life but like you said so that we can know god in a completely different way this, like you said the voice of the victim that from now on we will be like the people on Emmaus Road, that in the breaking of the bread, in the total debasement of the sacraments, we will be able to hear and see and be with God. If that's what sin merited, of course sin is awful. You should hate sin. You should never sin. It would be better if no one ever sinned. But in light of that, in light of the greatness of love that God responded with, oh, happy fault, right? That, that, that sin is rendered almost good poetically people but almost because of of the reality of what god did for us and so you know kudos to 28 year old Bo dotting i's and crossing t's but what 42 year old Bo is trying to say is i i realize and really understand in a way i never did but about why that rings so true love is stronger than death and it speaks in a way through its utter dis- debasement in the victimhood of Christ that is the overwhelming power of love of the resurrection. And so, yes, oh, happy fault of Adam that we have a Savior such as this. This is the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mars. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for anyone who's listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. On iowacatholicradio.com, you can listen live if you have data on Iowa Catholic Radio app. And then, of course, anyone listening to the podcast, it's wonderful to have you with us. Bud, Easter season. I know we're here on the outro, but to say it one more time, he's risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia. No, but it's uh, not only wonderful to celebrate Easter, um, it's wonderful to get to talk about the resurrection. I hope it's been edifying for people listening out there and that we didn't throw in too many name drops. (laughs) I feel like that was truly an Easter episode with Easter energy. I guess it's only natural like during Lent, you know, like a little more morose and reserved, but... uh, (laughs) I had a pep in my step recording, but always wonderful to reflect on the resurrection. I think uh, the the lens that it gives us, hopefully, as we go out into our, our daily lives, like truly exhibiting that joy uh, with whomever we meet. If you do want to join us in our prayer life here at Iowa Catholic Radio, you can do so. We pray the rosary together, 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. Both of those are broadcast out. The Divine Mercy Chaplet or Chaplet of Divine Mercy at 2.55 in the afternoon. But Bo mentioned the Iowa Catholic Radio app. If you download that on your phone, you can pray the rosary anytime, anywhere using the app. And if you want to make sure to join us for Iowa Catholic Radio events in and around the diocese, you can check that out at iowacatholicradio.com. And let me point out, the Diocese of Des Moines, everybody is invited. We're trying to show more events from all over the diocese. I know we get people from um, outside, of course, Iowa listening. Make sure to plug into your diocese, see what's going on. Um, if you're listening on, an, uh, on a radio station somewhere else, uh, wonderful that too. But even if it's podcast, try to plug in locally. We're a resurrected people. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Go bodily, get involved. Some of the stuff you can do here in Iowa. Um, on May 18th, we have the 2023 Iowa Catholic Radio Golf Classic. That's going to be at the Legacy Golf Club in Norwalk. So you can go to iowacatholicradio.com to register there. 
Um, we also have uh, on June 16th in West Des Moines, St. Francis of Assisi at 7 p.m., Rome Beneath the Surface with Deacon Omar Guterres, host of the Catholic Hour with the Inve- uh, Evangelium Institute. Um, and then we also have Walker Hayes at July 15th at the Community Choice Credit Union Convention Center Ballroom. So uh, Walker Hayes presented by Fairway to benefit the Iowa Catholic Radio Foundation with special guest George Burge and local favorite Josh Sinclair. Uh, get advanced tickets starting May third, uh, March thirtieth. Excuse me, before they go on sale in general public. Uh, use code ICR ten, and uh, again one more time, you can go check that out on iowacatholicradio.com. And then uh, after that, but we start talking about um, August tenth and stuff that's oh, going wow. on in the state fair. So, Don't mention August. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to go all the way out there yet. But the point is, iowacatholicradio.com, a perfect way to see the events that are going on. And then, of course, this ministry can't happen except that you all out there, the good listeners, the resurrection people, the Easter people, um, participate with your prayers, uh, with your, your, your talents, people who volunteer, but also your treasure. Please prayerfully think about um, giving to this ministry, not only so local shows like The Uncommon Good um, can play like they do, uh, but all of our uh, national shows, just the whole shebang, it happens because of your generosity. You can donate at iowacatholicradio.com, the Iowa Catholic Radio app, or if you call 515-223-1150, you can call or text and donate then. All of those uh, donations, prayerfully uh, appreciated, very grateful for your you guys making this available. Thank you so much for supporting our show and Iowa Catholic Radio. Bud, like you said, it's April, it's spring. I hope you get to go out and uh, enjoy the Easter season. Yeah, real quick, Cadbury eggs, yes or no? <laughs> um, I, you know, most sugar that first week or two weeks, even even stuff that it's not my favorite, yes. Rest of the year, not so much. What's the staple meat at your Easter feast? Uh, we did a Costco ham. I like mm. not like I know I'm sounding like uh, <laughs> Costco ham. <laughs> But it was fantastic. Nice. So the ham, very much the ham. All right. Well, if I have you over next year, I'll be sure to provide the ham. Uh, and if Costco, well, we, you shouldn't you shouldn't ask people to sponsor like live on the air. But I'm just saying <laughs> it was a good ham. I hope you guys all had a hamtastic. Easter we'll send feast. them an invoice. They'll just be surprised. That's right. That's right. Uncommon good. Speaking of that, this is the uncommon good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, our family, city, state, nation. World, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and The Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu.